Hello, Playful Eco Warriors, and welcome to the second episode of Climate for Fun, the podcast that turns climate change into a laughing matter. Here is Antonio Salituro, climate scientist, writer, and comedian. Today, I'm thrilled to have my first guest, Joran Bauman, the world's first and only stand-up economist, who also authored a humorous cartoon book on climate change. Welcome, Joram, and thanks for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks for uh, having me. Thanks a lot. So are you ready to be grilled? Uh, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Just joking. Anyway, let's start with uh, some questions that are prepared for you. Right. Let's start from your title. You claim to be the world's first and only stand-up economist. Your title sounds fancy, but that would, what does it actually mean? And what inspired you to come up with it? Well, it says on the internet that I'm the world's first and only stand-up economist, so it must be true. <laughs> it must be true. Uh, I, I actually, although nobody believes me, I make a living doing stand-up comedy about economics. Uh, I'll tell you the first joke I ever told on stage, which was that when I told my father I was going to be a stand-up economist, he said, Yorami said, you can't be a stand-up economist. And I said, why not? And he said, because there's no demand. <laughs> I said, I, I said, don't worry, Dad, I'm a supply-side economist. I just, <laughs> I just stand up and let the jokes trickle down. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I kind of, when I was in graduate school, I wrote a parody of an economics textbook just to kind of blow off some steam. And uh, one thing led to another, and I started doing stand-up comedy as a hobby. And then after I finished my PhD, uh, two things happened. One was that my academic career did not go quite as well as one might have hoped. All and right. the second one was that I had a video up on YouTube that got a million hits and people started wow. emailing me and asking me if I could do, you know, if I could perform. And I started wow. saying yes. And so sort of over the next few years, it gradually went from being a hobby to being uh, to, to being my job. Okay, cool. I really need to check that video thing because <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, Lots of videos on my website, standupeconomist.com. Yeah, 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 sure. That, that sounds good. Definitely something to look forward to after this meeting. And when did you first become interested in climate change? Because obviously you're an economist, but whatever. What, when, the, when did climate change come in? You know, I was... I was a math major as an undergraduate. I took a couple economics courses, and one of them I came across this idea of environmental tax reform, which is like higher taxes <clears throat> on bad things that we want less of, like pollution, yeah. and then you can use the revenue to reduce existing taxes on things we want more of, like jobs and income and savings and investment. And yeah. I remember thinking that that was kind of an intellectually beautiful idea and also yeah. one that might actually work in the real world, right? Like higher taxes on bad things, lower taxes on good things. Yeah. And so um, uh, I decided to go to graduate school in economics basically to study that idea, that idea of environmental tax reform, tax shifting, and, uh, you know, started off sort of looking at pollution generally and then have ended up spending a lot of time and effort working on climate change issues in particular. Okay, I'll ask you a few more questions on this, but in a minute. But then let me let me get this straight. So, economy and climate change are possibly the two most boring topics ever. <laughs> do you like do you like challenges, or are you just a masochist or something? <laughs> Seriously, uh, I mean, what's what's your secret for getting laughs? Well, it helps to have low expectations. So, uh, so that's part of it, but I think it's also, you know, you can do comedy anytime there are stereotypes to play with and there are strong yeah. stereotypes about economists, you know, sort of being, <laughs> being hyper rational and always focused yeah. on money, um, numbers, 
Exactly. And so <laughs> when you have those stereotypes, you can sort of play against those stereotypes. Uh, That's I don't true. Know if, I don't know if there's necessarily similar stereotypes about climate scientists. Uh, so that might actually be a little more challenging. Yeah, I guess like, you know, a polar bear sagger or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> so fair enough. Yeah, That could be one. Uh, yeah, there are plenty. Uh, that's, uh, I, they can't can, can come on top of my mind now, but there are plenty, I'm sure. <laughs> well, so let, let's talk a bit about your book anyway, the, the cartoon introduction to climate change. I'm usually very slow leader, but I sped up a lot when going through your book, which is a good sign. I found it extremely informative, yet easy to understand and funny which is as rare as polar bears when it comes to books about global warming. As you know, I'm a writer, so I'm kind of good with words, but I'm terrible at drawing. To quote my mom, I can't even draw a circle using a glass. <laughs> though, <laughs> though I found the book vignettes very cool, so I was wondering if you think visuals are more affecting than words in climate comedy. Well, first of all, I, I should say that I should give lots of credit to my co-author, who's also the illustrator, because yeah. I also cannot draw to save my life. Uh, <laughs> so kudos to Grady Klein. He and I have, have collaborated on the cartoon introduction to climate change, which is actually now in a, a second edition. The revised edition just released um, uh, this year. Well, I guess last year, 2022, based yeah. on the newest IPCC report. Um, yeah. We've also collaborated on two cartoon books about economics and a cartoon book about uh, calculus. And, oh. uh, you know, we have a really great collaboration and his drawings are fabulous. And <laughs> I do think, I mean, in the process of working on these books, um, I've become a big fan of, uh, you know, graphic, graphic nonfiction, if you want to use the fancy word for cartoon <laughs> wow. books. Um, nice. You know, but... And at least here in America, I don't know if this is true internationally, but at least in America, lots of people think that cartoon books are sort of quote unquote, just for kids. Uh, and it's yeah. true that they're very accessible and kids do like them, but it's also true. Like, you know, if you go on, uh, you know, a train or an airplane or whatever, and you look at the emergency instructions, they're basically in cartoon form. And that's not because they're just for kids. It's because that's a very good way to convey sometimes complex information very quickly. And that's what um, that's what we try to do in the in the cartoon books is have a fun, informative presentation of important material. And you succeed, I think. Honestly, I went through the book and it, it was so easy to read. You know, you just enjoy it. To be honest, so I, I recommend it. Anyway, let, let's go more into details. So the first two parts of your book do an excellent job at breaking down the science behind global warming, which is usually quite difficult. But sometimes people pretend not to understand. So how do you handle climate deniers? Do, do you ever joke around what they say? Because some of the things they say are actually hilarious, honestly. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I do my best. You know, one of, the, one of the rules of comedy and kind of the rules of public speaking is you have to start where the audience is. So, yeah. I, you know, I do my best to be respectful of folks who come from different you know, perspectives or backgrounds when it comes yeah. to climate science. And then I just tell my story, right? Which is, um, in, in part, it's, uh, it relates to this bet that I made with some fellow economists. So back in 2014, there was a fellow economist named Brian Kaplan who reached out to me and he's sort of famous for making bets and winning lots of bets. And he seemed to think <laughs> that climate scientists didn't know what they were talking about. So he made a <laughs> He made a bet with me that global temperatures wouldn't increase for the next 15 years wow. after 2014. 
and he, you know, he asked me for two to one odds, and I said, "Look, I'll give you three to one odds." And <laughs> so, you know, we bet a, a, his thousand, my thousand dollars against his three hundred dollars. Uh, you know, and as you probably know, I, I, I'm kind of I'm crushing him in the bet, right? Like we're halfway yeah. through big yeah, time, halfway, I would say. <laughs> yeah, so we're halfway through the betting period, and every year I post something on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at, at standupecon, uh, yeah. and I or at standup economist, and I post something on Twitter that says, "Hey, look, you know, the good news is that you can still win our bet because it's for a 15 year period, so it doesn't end until 2030, right? But in order <laughs> to win the bet." All that has to happen is global temperatures have to be, you know, 0.5 degrees Celsius lower than they've been for the last eight years. Um, <laughs> and so every year it gets harder and harder for him to win the bet. Yeah, um, unfortunately, but, uh, yes, in a way. Good, uh, good for you. <laughs> yeah, good for me. Bad, I mean, bad for the, cli bad for the yeah. climate. You know, I mean, it would, it would be great if climate scientists actually didn't know what they were doing. But, I mean, we're now yeah. at a point where there was a time, <clears throat> you know, 10, 20 years ago when the debates about climate science were kind of about historical uh, events, you know, like um, the medieval warming period and stuff like that. And yeah. that was my take on it. And I'm not a climate scientist, but I certainly respect and hang out with climate scientists. Yeah. Right? My take is that we now have enough data from the current period, right, from the 21st century to basically yeah. say, hey, look, I mean, the way that science works is, and the thing that's amazing about science is you make predictions about the future. And if, if the predictions come true, then that gives you credibility. And we now have enough modern data to, to have that credibility for climate science, right? We don't have to argue about the medieval warm period anymore because yeah. we've had like IPCC science and climate scientists saying, hey, we're going to get about 0.2 degrees Celsius per decade of warming. And that's what we've gotten. So yeah. it's, you know, it's like dropping a rock off of a bridge and the rock falls in, you know, into the water. Like that's, that's a <laughs> yeah, good prediction. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Let's say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so from coming from, from climate science to economy a bit more. So as my economic, economic knowledge is as poor as Trump expertise of climate science, I want to pick your brain on part three of your book where you discuss actions, or to use a more boring word, policies. So if you were to explain me in simple words what policies economists should push forward to fight climate change, what would you say? Well, so the way that economists think about pollution problems is actually really simple. It's that the way to get less pollution is to make polluting expensive. Yeah. Because <laughs> when you make polluting expensive, you get market forces working to promote conservation, innovation, development of new technologies, all the things that I, at least as a you know pretty mainstream neoclassical kind of economist, all the things uh, that I love about capitalism, right? And whatever you think about capitalism, maybe you love capitalism, maybe you hate capitalism. We should all be able to agree that capitalism is a very powerful force in the world. And so what I work on and what a lot of economists work on, you know, including uh, Bill Nordhaus, who won the Nobel Prize for his work in large part on climate economics. He won that a couple of years ago, right, is that we should have we should put a price on carbon. So using something like a carbon tax or a cap and trade system uh, to make polluting more expensive. And then the extra policy that I sort of put on top of that is that we can use uh, the revenue from something like a carbon tax to reduce existing taxes as a way to make the policy more palatable, as a way to make it more pocketbook friendly, as a way to 
put money back into people's pockets, right? So we're making polluting more expensive. I'll give you an example. I live in Utah now in Salt Lake City. And Utah is one of the few states in the United States that still has a sales tax on grocery store food. And yeah. so the I'm working with a group called Clean the Darn Air. Uh, Utah also yeah. has some pretty bad local air pollution problems. And we're working <laughs> on a ballot measure here in Utah. And the ballot measure is let's have a let's get rid of the sales tax on grocery store food. Let's put some money into local clean air programs and let's pay for it with a modest tax on fossil fuels, right? Yeah. On the on the carbon emissions, the fossil fuels that contribute to local air pollution and global climate change. So in a nutshell, yeah. we're, you know, we want to tax pollution instead of potatoes and put yeah. the money that's <laughs> left over and put the money that's left over into cleaning the darn air. Uh, yeah. So that's sort of the, the, you know, in general, the way that economists think we should do this is to put a, is to put a price on carbon there. Yeah. Of course, as we have seen, especially in the United States, there are some political challenges with that. Yeah. And so you end up with these you know, other policies, regulatory policies, incentive policies, like the Inflation Reduction Act, things like that. And, you know, this is what economists call the world of the second best. So I hesitate to say <laughs> that those policies are no good because it's not clear that we can get the first best policy, right? Like we would prefer to have a, a, a straight up carbon tax, but if we can't have a carbon tax, then maybe, you know, there's a case to be made for some of these other policies. Yeah, definitely. Carbon tax sounds, doing in that way, designed properly, I think that that should be helpful to, to lower the tax. That that makes a lot of sense. So speaking of taxes, uh, I, I might scare away some listener here with yeah. the next question, but do you think we should tax frequent flyers? And if you do, how? So the great thing about a carbon tax is it applies to the consumption of fossil fuels. So yeah. uh, it, it, you can expand that to include jet fuel and... Yeah. Uh, whether you're a frequent flyer or a one-time flyer, you pay the carbon tax. And that makes, you know, if, if you're traveling a short distance, it's going to make uh, like rail travel, for example, more attractive than flying yeah. on an airplane. Uh, exactly. It'll encourage the airlines to think about, you know, and explore biofuels and yeah. alternatives. You can actually, um, <clears throat> there's, there's a famous Seinfeld routine uh, from one of the right. starts of, of, of um, uh, of one of the, one of the episodes of, of his TV show where he's, he says, you know, he was on an airplane and the pilot was like, you know, got on the intercom and said that they took off late, but uh, they're going to make it up in the air. And he says, you know, he makes a joke about like, you know, why, when you say make it up in the air, that makes it sound like you can go faster. So why don't you just always <laughs> go as fast as you possibly can? Right? And, and there's actually an, and there's actually an answer to that. The answer is that planes get like cars, they get better gas mileage if they, if they don't go at their maximum possible speed. And yeah. so even with airplanes, like with automobiles, there's a trade-off between how fast you go and what kind of gas mileage you get. Obviously. And so something like, something like a carbon tax would encourage, you know, the airlines to think about that sort of thing, as well yeah. as encouraging passengers to think about, well, you know, do you need to make that trip? Can you do it on Zoom? Yeah. Can you, you know, is there another way that, you know, can you travel by train or by car or whatever? Uh, so that's what I love about something like a carbon tax is it sort of provides incentives for everybody to, to think about alternatives. Yeah, obviously it's, it's too cheap to fly to Madrid in, you know, over the weekend, obviously then people tend to go because, you know, it's cheap. And then obviously company airlines should, should think about efficiency, essentially, when you talk about mileage, that's what it means, I suppose. Um, so coming back to what people do, yeah. 
So I never heard about the tragedy of the commons before reading your book. At first, I thought it was a sort of ancient Greek remake of The Day After Tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) And I wasn't far off, as it roots back to Aristotle, I think. But then I realized much worse. My interpretation is that commons, also known as humans, tend to focus on what's good for them, neglecting what's good for the community and the planet. And that ends up in a tragedy like climate change, right? Makes sense? It does, but to come at it from the economics perspective, there's also uh, there's a competing story. So there's the tragedy of the common story that sort of says, well, people are so focused on what's good for themselves as individuals, you know, looking out for number one, uh, that they don't think about what's good for you know the group as a whole. But in economics, we have an, another perspective on that same challenge. And that comes from Adam Smith and the invisible hand idea. Yeah. Right? And, and Adam Smith's invisible hand basically says, hey, when people do what's in their own self-interest, it's good for everybody. And uh, what, what I find interesting about economics is that both of those stories are, are true right. in, in different circumstances. So <laughs> in many cases, the invisible hand story is true, right? Like that's what makes capitalist economies so successful. Um, yeah. But there are also some situations where we have you know, what economists call market failure and externalities are an example. So pollution is an example. Um, if you really want to get depressed, then you should study fisheries around the world because it's always the same story, right? It's always like you start out with more fish than anybody could possibly catch and then we catch them all, right? Because an open access fishery, if you have a lake or an ocean or whatever, and yeah. everybody has access to it, that's kind of like a bank account and everybody has an ATM card. And at the end of the day, there's going to be a disaster, right? Unless, unless you have some sort of uh, generally public policy approach where people get together and say, okay, we need to protect the commons, right? We need to do something to avoid the tragedy of the commons. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Look, my last question, well, not quite last question, but nearly, we're getting there. In, in 2018, William Norders won a Nobel Prize in economic science. And he said he, he got the award for integrating climate change into long run microeconomic analysis, which sounds like Arabic to me. But I read an article for economy dummies like me saying that this guy underestimated the future impacts of climate change. So I was curious to know your thoughts about this, if you know anything on on the subject. Yeah, so there's, you know, if we think about a a time path, let's say that, you know, there's arguments about what business as usual would mean in terms of uh, emissions and temperature change and stuff like that. But if we take, let's take three degrees Celsius or four degrees Celsius, there's sort of a debate in the economics world, and I think the world more broadly, about basically about how bad that would be. And that factors into the question about, well, how much effort should we put in right now to try to avoid that? And so in economics, this is often called related to a concept called the social cost of carbon, which, again, is basically like, well, how bad is it going to be? to live in a world that's three degrees Celsius or four degrees Celsius warmer than, than pre-industrial. And I guess I would say that Nordhaus is sort of on the, he's on the more, the more moderate side of things in terms of what the potential impacts are. There are some other economists and other thinkers who are, are, are more concerned. I think that, um, 
for, from my perspective, I think a pretty good take on it comes from uh, uh, from another economist, Marty Weitzman, who uh, tragically passed away before he could win the Nobel Prize, but he was right. also going to win the Nobel Prize in economics. And, you know, his perspective is basically that, that we should look at climate change as a risk, right? There's some possibility that you know, 3C or 4C will be more or less okay, especially for those of us in the richer parts of the world. <laughs> um, but there's a risk that it could be a disaster, right? And yeah. so that should make us think about insurance policies. And the best insurance policy we can buy is emissions reductions, is, is mitigation, reducing em emissions of fossil fuels in particular, uh, or yeah consumption of fossil fuels. And yeah. I, so I think that's that sort of risk analysis story is the one yeah. that makes the most sense to me. I don't think, um, it, you know, there was another famous uh, economics talk by another Nobel Prize winner, Thomas Schelling, <laughs> called some economics of global warming, where he basically said, look, imagine somebody 100 years ago trying to figure out what kind of challenges and problems we would face in the world today. That's similar to thinking about where we are right now and thinking about, well, what is somebody in, you know, a uh, hundred years from now, what kind of challenges are they going to face if the world is warmer or, or not warmer? And so um, it's, it's difficult to put yourself in that perspective, especially if you go out a hundred years or 200 years and we should have humility about that, right? We should be humble about yeah. what the future is going to look like. I'll give you a, a, another example. I used to live in Seattle and yeah. Uh, you know, for hundreds, probably thousands of years, uh, you know, the uh, salmon runs, the fisheries yeah. in the rivers in that area were incredibly important for the, you know, for for the community there, for people who were living there. And by building dams and overfishing, like we've basically destroyed those fish, those fisheries, the right. salmon runs. <clears throat> but Seattle is doing fine, right? It's not like you know, it's not like people are starving. Yeah. Um, and, and so that should give us some humility when we try to do these long run forecasts about, well, what's the world going to be like 100 or 200 years from now? And what are people going to care about? When I think about it, the last thing I'll say about this is just that, um, you know, if one of the well-known impacts of climate change is sea level rise, and there's debates about and uncertainty about how much sea level rise we're going to get. but um, Presumably, if there's sufficient sea level rise, then it will be very hard to maintain beaches, right? In places, yeah. you know, like Hawaii and, uh, you know, in Spain and things like that. And that's not, you know, that's not going to lead anybody to starve, but it's going to impact quality of life yeah. in a very significant way. And my yeah. take on it is look, you know, if we can save beaches and reduce the risk of even worse climate impacts, and all we have to do is get rid of a sales tax on grocery store food and replace it with a sale with a tax on fossil fuels. Like that just seems like a no brainer to me. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> no, so, so make makes a lot of sense to be honest. Okay, well that that's a, that's a lot to take on, uh, but yeah. It, 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 all sensible things to me. Now, I think we are going to the um, less serious, well, <laughs> more funny um, part of the podcast. So I got a couple of questions for you. So one is, I'm going to ask this question, by the way, to 
all my guests, so don't take it personally. Uh, first question, uh, tell me one thing about climate change that makes you laugh. I know it's difficult, but <laughs> let's see. Well, so I'll tell you two things. So one is oh, if, wow. you look, if you look at our cartoon book, the cartoon introduction to climate change, there's an explanation yeah. of uh, of the Milankovitch cycles. So the, oh, yeah. you know, one of the questions in that, that comes up a lot is, well, you know, temperatures have changed before there were ice ages, right? And, yeah. you know, it wasn't because of burning fossil fuels that we went in and out of ice ages. And, uh, and the answer to this is from this Serbian mathematician named Milankovic, who during the first world war, like in a POW camp, a prisoner of war camp, like did mm. all these calculations and figured wow. out that it was about, um, that it was about, uh, changes in the earth's rotation around the sun that basically triggered the ice ages. And uh, there's this great drawing that Grady did in the book where he has this imaginary persons instead of the earth, we have this imaginary person uh, uh, <laughs> rotating around the sun, uh, but, but he's wearing tidy whities. So he's wearing underwear and it's <laughs> just got, he's just got these great graphics in there. So that yeah. every time I see that graphic, that makes me laugh. So that's one thing. Uh, yeah, I remember yeah, that. The other thing is I'll tell you, you know, when I do my comedy routines, yeah. um, what I've learned from doing stand-up comedy is that if you make people laugh for 35 or 40 minutes, you can kind of talk to them about anything you want for five or 10 minutes and they will <laughs> give you, they'll give you the time of day, right? Like they may not agree with you, but they'll listen. And so I talk about climate change and why I think it's important and how there are, uh, you know, uh, pocketbook friendly market-based approaches that we can use to tackle climate change. Um, sure. And so I talk about climate change for a little bit. And then at the very end of that, I say to the audience, you know, thanks for putting up with me, you know, while I talk <laughs> about climate change for a few minutes, you know, and now I'll go back to telling you jokes. Although I did this routine once for a very conservative crowd in Minnesota. And this Ooh. guy came up to me at the end of my talk and said that the funniest thing in my whole talk was what I said about climate change. <laughs> it was the, the funniest part of my whole routine. <laughs> well, um, fair enough. Good, good. Good yeah. point, I guess. <laughs> well. So... So then, I, and then okay. I go back to telling people jokes. Yeah, fair enough. And in, in, instead, one fun thing people can do to fight climate change. What do you think? A fun thing that people yeah. can do to fight climate change. Yeah. I mean, I so I like to I work on ballot measure campaigns. So, oh. um, you know, this like you go out. A bunch of U.S. states have them. Utah, where I live now, Washington State, where I lived before. Yeah. Uh, you know, and if you if you gather, it's an amazing thing, right? If you gather a bunch of signatures, in the case of Utah, it's 150,000 signatures. Wow. Uh, if you if you gather 150,000 signatures, like you can put your idea on the ballot and everybody votes on it. And if more people vote yes than no, then your idea becomes law. Right? Yeah. So that's kind that's of this fun. amazing thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so um, I really, that gives us an opportunity to go out and talk to people on the street and... Um, and it's a positive, like we have this positive vision that says, hey, here's something that we can do to tackle climate change that's, you know, it's pocketbook friendly, it makes sense for the economy, we can get rid of the sales tax on grocery store food. And so that's something that, um, that's something that's fun for me. I'm not sure that I'd say that volunteering it, to it, collect signatures is fun for everybody, but well, it's fun it for does. me. It does sound fun, interactive, you know, interact with people. I think it's, I would do it, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know if everybody would do it. Yeah. And okay, cool. And uh, now is the is your moment, basically. I mean, it's I call it stand up for the planet. Yeah. And it's a section where 
guest, in, in this case you, should come up with a joke about climate change. Well, which I'm hoping that it's going to be easy for you. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you some. I'll, I'll tell you some jokes about uh, economics, and some of them relate okay. to climate change. So, as I mentioned earlier, one of the reasons that I can do stand-up comedy about economics is that there are these strong stereotypes to play with about economists. And so, I have a whole series of "you might be an economist if" jokes. So, uh, yeah. you know, you might be an economist if you're an expert on money, but you dress like a disaster victim. <laughs> you might you might be an economist if you. Uh, think that America's next top model should be an endogenous <laughs> growth model with technological change. Uh, you might be an economist if you don't read human interest stories because they don't interest you. Uh, you might be a macroeconomist if you think the chicken crossed the road because of a series of unexpected developments in global financial markets. Uh, you, might, nice you, might, you, might, you might be a game theorist if you're an expert on poker, but you've never actually played a hand. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> and you and you might be an environmental economist if you spend a lot of time flying around the world telling people that we need to spend less time flying around the world. <laughs> That's uh, a nice paradox, yeah. Okay, yeah, fair um, enough. Yeah, you, you gave me quite a lot. <laughs> quite a few. Uh, yeah, I could go on. You know, you might be an economist if you, <laughs> you might be an economist if you adamantly refuse to sell your children because you think they'll be worth more later. <laughs> Wow, that's nasty. <laughs> okay, cool, cool. That, that's you got a good repertoire, <laughs> definitely. There you go. I'm, I'm set. I'm Thanks. setting the bar for your future guests. Uh, yeah, it's gonna be tough to. <laughs> it's gonna be a real challenge to to overcome that. Anyway, <laughs> we'll go ahead. And now, okay, now a bit more challenging for you, perhaps. Oh. There is a quiz time. Yeah, oh, I call okay. it "Who Wants to Be Climate Aware?" So not millionaire, but climate aware. <laughs> You just need to <laughs> you just need to answer to three multiple choice questions. Okay. Sorry to disappoint you, but it's only for the glory. Alright. <laughs> ready for that? I'm ready. Okay. First question. What does the carbon footprint of making an average book correspond to? A. Charging nearly six hundred smartphones. B. Charging nearly six hundred students striking for the climate. C. <laughs> <laughs> C, charging nearly 600 solar power banks. I'm going to go with A. And it's the right one. Well done, right. well done, well done. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> and the second question is, what is climate washing? Yeah. A, a climate-friendly washing machine setting. <laughs> B, a false or unclear claim about climate mitigation achievements. C, a new type of money laundering that mafia uses to reinvest their illegal profit in decarbonization techniques. Huh, well, I think you're Italian. Are you Italian, Antonio? Yeah, I am. <laughs> I'm, temp I'm tempted to say C, but I think the answer is B. <laughs> you, so you confirm which one you confirm? B. Okay, B is the right one, yeah. <laughs> I, nearly, I nearly tricked you there, yeah? <laughs> Okay, it's so the last but question. I, I did see a headline about this mafia fellow in Italy who was arrested like after Oh what, yeah, decades, yeah, that right? was a big guy, yeah, 30 years, 30 after 30 years, yeah. Yeah. No. Sicilian guy. So first question and last one. Who said that God has buried fossil fuels underground because he loves to see us find them? <laughs> <laughs> that that's already this hilarious, is, I know. This but... is going to be hard. Yeah, I know, I know, it's going to be very hard. Oh, A, yeah. <laughs> A, the Pope. 
B, <laughs> B, Exxon CEO. C, the director of the American Family Association. Oh, I got to go with C. And you're right again. Well done. Thank three you. out of three. Well done. Yeah, 100%. Thank, so. <laughs> thank you very much. Very good. Very good. Very good. Okay, right. That's the end of Climate for Fun second episode. Yoram, thank you so much for your fun contribution. And not only fun, actually, you, you said a lot of things, a lot of nice things. Um, but thank you very much again. It's a pleasure. Good luck to us all. <laughs> and of course, thanks to whoever tuned in today. In the next episode, I'll interview Beth Osnes, a professor who conducted a case study called Stand Up for Climate Change, where she assessed how climate comedy shows performed by underground students can engage more people to save our planet. In the meantime, remember to fight climate change one laugh at a time. Ciao. <laughs>